0: People always ask me, you know, why do I take risks or why am I creative? And I always say to them, it's my parents. My parents loved me unconditionally. I was allowed to make mistakes. And therefore, for me to think freely did not harm me.
1: Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills? Or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey.
2: Hey real estate investors, Sarah Larvey here and today's guest is an amazing investor with tons of experience Matt Frederick. So if you guys have ever heard him speak or know of him you will know that he is probably one of the most advanced real estate investors that we've had on this podcast so far and matt is a developer he knows a lot about storage units we're going to get into and just so much wealth of information commercial properties like he's really done a lot of different types of investing and so he And I talk a lot about just different types of strategies and A really cool new concept with what he's doing with storage units. I'm really really excited for this podcast It just allows for some of the investors that are already doing it out there just to get some new ideas and some new ways of investing that they may not have or that you guys may not have Thought of in the past and i will say like after talking to matt just about his storage unit numbers and how he's finding the locations and developing the site and how he's making his money i mean it's just amazing it is something that you know we're not dealing with the same kind of tenants we're not dealing with a whole landlord tenant board so some really 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 cool stuff and so i guess we should probably get into the interview and the other thing i will say is Matt is speaking at our Wright Club on January 16th, 2019. So depending on when you guys hear this or when you listen to it, it may or may not have come and gone yet, but he will be speaking about developments, about commercial properties and storage units and sharing some of his knowledge. So feel free to come out to the Wright Club, which is at the Burlington Holiday Inn from 7 to 10 p.m. January 16th. And if you guys have not been there yet and you would like to attend your first events, go to Sarah at Sarah Larby.com, my website, Sarah Larby.com, or the right Club. It's T-H-E-R-E-I-T-E-Club.com and you can book your tickets or you can send me an email and I will get you your first events attendance for free. So That is my offer to you guys for listening to this podcast, and thank you. You guys are awesome. And so without further ado, let's get on with our interview with Matt Frederick. All right, and today we have Matt Frederick. Hi, Matt. How are you?
0: Very good, Sarah.
2: Excellent, excellent. Really excited to have you on the show. So we're going to be talking about some different things today development. We're going to be talking about investing at a country and storage units and a few other things, because you've done so much <laughs> in the time that you been <laughs> investing in real estate. So let's take it back, I guess, and just see if you can share with us how you got started in real estate investing and why.
0: So Sarah, I started at 19 years old. I bought my first house, I'm not really an investor. So I bought my house just to buy a house. By the time I was like 25 years old, I was actually working as a teacher at a private vocational school. My brother was a police officer. He came to me and said, you know, Matthew, we should invest in real estate. And I'm like, I'm not going to invest in real estate. I'm a teacher. He says, I'm your older brother. I have a gun. We're going to invest. So I thought, okay, you know what? Maybe I will. Um, I didn't want to invest because I didn't want investing to steal my glory. I figured I'm a teacher. I work so hard for it. Didn't want that stone of investing to make it be the way I made money in life, but uh, I still went for it. I borrowed against my home that I bought when I was 19. I bought it mostly cash, and I was able to get a triplex in Hamilton for about $120,000. This is back in 1992, 93. Then, about a year later, I purchased a, a four level backsplit on the escarpment. It was an in law scenario. And then a year later, I also did another one. And then I ran into a brick wall. I couldn't buy any more. So I looked good on paper, but I had no more money.
2: <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of people that are probably listening to your story. And they're like, hey, you know, I'm at three now or I'm at four and I'm hitting the brick wall. How did you overcome it?
0: Well, I did two things. First, I saw a property in Kitchener that I really liked and had my sister. It was a Six Flex, actually. And I had my sister co-sign it. But uh, after that, I, I had some money to buy properties. So what I started doing, I started looking at for sale by owners in the newspaper because back then that's what we had. And uh, after getting about 50 or 60 rejections, because I'd call people and ask them, "You have a house? I'd like to buy it." And I guess they saw me as a competitor. They, they were investors. I was an investor. wasn't working, so I switched it up. I thought, "Okay, I'll look at houses that are for rent," and I would call people who had houses for rent and ask them if they wanted to sell. Because sometimes you buy a house and it's more than you can handle. And uh, got about 50 rejections, but I had one person from Brantford. Uh, your town, said yeah. to me that uh, he had a property, and I thought, okay, jumped in my car. I was in Hamilton, drove out there to see it, and I realized he had ten properties. And so I said to him, listen, I'm left to buy all ten. Now for me, I only had enough to put five percent down on each of these houses. That was it. And they were in the eighty to hundred thousand dollar range. So I asked him and says, listen, what bothers you about real estate? He says, I hate tenants. He says, I hate banks, and I hate taxes. I go, okay, if I can come back with a solution for all three of those, can I buy all 10 of your houses? He says, go right ahead. So I came back and uh, I, I said to him, I'll buy all 10. I'll put 5% down on each. So for this example, let's just say each are $100,000. So I'm putting 5K down on each. And I told him, it, I asked him if he can hold a mortgage, a 95% mortgage, first position on each property. Now that's close to $950,000. And I said to him, your tenants become my tenants. And don't hate the banks because you're becoming a bank. Because back then in those days, when it came to interest rates, interest rates in 1995, was about uh, 7%. In 96 was about 4%. So I said to him, I'll pay you 6.5%, which is about 2% higher than the going interest rate for him to hold a mortgage for five years. And uh, he said, you know what? I'll hold a mortgage for five years. And I also said to him, you're 60 years old. By the time you retire five years from now, I mean, right now you're in a 52% tax bracket, you'll be in a 23% tax bracket. So if you receive the bulk of your money from that VTB, because you can carry it for five years without paying uh, capital gains, at least when you retire and you're in a lower tax bracket, you'll get the bulk of the money and that will save you a lot on taxes. So I said, number one, your tenants become mine. Number two, you're the bank, so don't hate the bank you're getting 6.5%. Even if you were to invest it in a, a GIC back then, you'd get uh, about 5.5%. So 6.5% is still really good. And I said to him, you know, if you can uh, obviously let me pay you back in five years, you save on your taxes. If I don't make a payment, you're in first position. You can put the property for power of sale within 35 days. And so you're safe. And you know what? He went for it. Wow. I picked and- up 10 properties.
2: That's an unbelievable jump. So you're doing something that a lot of investors spend a lot of time learning and understanding. How did you even grasp that concept of a vendor take back back then? So in
0: 1992, I went to a training program for a gentleman named Charles Givens. So it was Charles J. Givens. And he was the one running, you know, the two hour free presentation, then the three day presentation. And then uh, you buy courses for twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars. So I did end up buying something for about twenty k. It was mostly American, probably ninety percent, but some of the concepts like assignment of contract or you know wholesale buying or VTBs or lease option, sandwiches option, option to purchase. A lot of these concepts were American, and what I do is I took them and I apply them in Canada. So much so, by 1998, I was actually a speak for the, the new guru, his name was Russ Wickney. And of course, later on, the next guru was, uh, I guess, Rich Dad and on and on and on. So I picked it up for some US guys, didn't work well, but I worked on it. I spent too much money not to work on it.
2: I mean, that's great. It is sad sometimes to see people spending so much money and not taking action on things. So kudos to you. And uh, and you've really, really jumped. So can you just share a little bit of what your portfolio consists of today and the type of investing that you do?
0: So when it comes to residential, I bought about 41 properties in total. So, you know, I've just mentioned to you the first uh, 14, 15, but some of them were buy, fix, and sells. Mm -hmm. Now, I waited five years after the 10 properties that I picked up before I did anything else. And some people think five years is a long time. But, you know, I grew up in a time when things were slower. Uh, we didn't have to get properties, two or three or four or five, in such a, a, a quick space of time. Mm-hmm. And after five years, I sold half of them, and I had money to do buy, fix, and sells. So I started doing buy, fix, and sells. Oh, and by the way, after five years, he did not want me to pay him out.
2: Oh, okay. Interesting.
0: Because, because he liked the money coming in. He figured if I had paid him the money, if he'd have to give it to his sons and daughters. He would rather hold on to it for his grandkids. I'm not sure what his family dynamic was. So in the end, I was able to pretty much keep paying him, and I sold off some of the houses, and I started doing buy, fix, and sells with those. And then I moved to my first real commercial property, and it was in Burlington. I'm, they were asking uh, 680000 I put in $100,000, and I had them hold a mortgage for the 580. That property was my lessons. I, I learned a lot of lessons on that property. I made a lot of mistakes on it. I didn't know what a phase one environmental was. I bought the property. I didn't go to the bank. I thought I was incredible. I thought so I was.
2: Let's talk great. a little bit about that and just you know what you would do or what you would suggest that they do. Because phase one. I mean, some people are probably wondering what what does that even mean, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. So normally, when you go to a bank and you ask them for financing for commercial property, they want to do an environmental. So you would pay roughly two thousand dollars, and somebody would come in. Like Pito McCallum is one company. They would come in and they would do a search fifty years back looking for any signs of any activity that could be environmentally unfriendly, like a gas station. Uh, they'll walk the land, and they will see if they can spot anything that's problematic. And uh, even if you had uh, cans of paint down in your basement that were not open, that could fail a phase one environmental. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but you know the banks want to know that you don't have an environmental problem. I didn't go to the bank because I went to the cellar and nobody asked, and my lawyer sort of mentioned it, but I didn't really wanna hear it, so I went past it. And years later, seven years later, I had to spend about $280,000 to clean that property because there were gas stations there 50 years earlier.
2: Wow. So That's it was a really big lesson. Absolutely. Now, just because you know so much about this stuff, what does a phase two and a phase three usually run just so that people can have an idea of if you do have to go to that next step?
0: Okay, so after your phase one, if, if it's determined that you need a phase two, that's really a follow-up investigation and a report on how to tackle the plan. It can cost about $19,000 to just put together the game plan, and that could include doing electrodynamic scan of your property for metals underground, and it puts together a plan for, for drilling. So uh, they'll p- pick about 10 or 20 boreholes. You have to pay for that drill to show up. You have to pay for those core samples to be taken out. You have to pay for those core samples to be tested. And then when they're tested, from there, they determine, okay, you know what? You do have hydrocarbons. And now we go to phase three, which is the remediation. So a company like Vertex might come in and either inject, let's say, hydrocarbon-eating bacteria into the ground. And then you wait for a while, a month or so, to see if it's eaten the hydrocarbons. And then they, they test again. So, the phase two would be 19,000. The phase three, all the drilling would be about 10,000 to drill, 10,000 to test. On that property, I did four drills, four tests. So, you know, we're looking at about $80,000 right there. Then, just really quickly, we found some gas tanks, underground storage tanks. So, therefore, we had to bring somebody special in to actually drink out the existing uh, chemical. Then, a special company had to pick up that metal, and then uh, move it, and we have to pay to dump that, and then we had to bring special soils in to actually, uh, you know, refill, and of course, you test underneath the tank as well, so it's a very long process, and uh, for me, it was about $280,000, it was a great education, I didn't enjoy it, but it's university, you know, 101, yeah, and, uh, absolutely. you know, all because I didn't do a $2,000 phase one environmental on my property, because I was just trying to cut costs.
2: (laughs) I guess that's a good lesson. And hopefully that anybody that's listening will never make that mistake because they heard (laughs) the amount of money that you paid for, <laughs> for that phase one era, I guess, but you, you've come a long way, obviously, since then. And now you're, you know, you're doing hotels and you're doing a lot of different things. So let's keep going. So you have a few uh, other types of investments. You got into the commercial, and then what did you do after that?
0: Yeah. So um, for the commercial properties, after you buy your first commercial, you realize very quickly you can't afford to buy second, third, or fourth. So you have to have partners. And so what I did was I mastered the art of uh, acquiring joint venture partners. Now, it's easy to have a partner where you put in 50% and they put in 50% and you're a 50% owner. It becomes very difficult with commercial real estate where you want them to put the down payment, the closing cost, and the mortgage, 100% of that, and you're a 50% owner. And that's a very complicated thing to do. A lot of people, you know, they have a concept where they'll just show the property, all the math. Then they will show the area study. Then they'll show the last five properties they did. They believe all three of those would cause someone to say, sure, I'll put all the money in and be 50% partner. But it doesn't work that way. I mean, if I were to come to you and say to you, hey, here's my bank statement. Here is where I live. And here are the last five girls that I dated. Will you marry me? (laughs) Would that work?
2: (laughs) probably not.
0: (laughs) But that's what people are doing showing the math, showing the area, showing the last five properties and expecting someone to to actually put money in at a large scale. You can't tell somebody how good a property is. You have to behave them into understanding how good you are. So you have to show them how you analyze the city. You spend time doing that with them. That could be three, four hours. Then you have a meal. You have to spend time analyzing 12 or 13 properties with them. There's nine things you have to do. You have to spend time going through the contracts with them. And as you're doing it, you're behaving uh, competency. Then you have to deal with uh, tenants and how you want to handle tenants, and you have to show them how you do that. So what I'm saying is there are nine areas you have to show them that you're competent in, then they spend money with you. Just like if I went to a young lady and said, the things I mentioned, that would not work. But if I showed that person over a period of time that, yes, I'm a solid guy. Yes, I'm able to be a good father. Yes, I could be a a co-provider. Yes, I'm trustworthy. Yes, I'm a person who is, you know, uh, easy to get along with. Through that behavior, then that person might marry me. Does that sort of make sense? So getting a JV partner is like marrying somebody. But some people forget. You know, they just do it a very quick way and it doesn't work.
1: Where should I invest? With your host, Sarah Larvey. We'll be right back.
2: Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick moment and pause the podcast interview here because I wanted to introduce you to Dahlia Barsoom of Streetwise Mortgages. I am a big believer, as you guys probably have heard work with a mortgage broker they are going to help you scale and when i was first growing in real estate investing and looking to buying my second property and my third property i was going directly to the bank then i hadn't met dahlia yet and i actually was hitting a roadblock when it came to financing because the bank started asking me for 25 percent as the down payment and then for my third property they wanted 35 percent And it was really, really hard for me to A, understand why it was creeping up like that and B, I didn't have 35% to put down. I had 20%. And luckily, I actually met Dahlia at that point in time. And Dahlia is actually an investor herself and she works with many, many investors. And she knows all the pitfalls and the barriers that normally come up with dealing directly with a bank and all the different lenders and Dahlia was actually able to not just find me proper alternatives, but I've got nine properties now and I'm still able to get financing with A lenders and it allows me to be able to scale up without hitting the financing wall. And so she's been a tremendous help. So the other thing I really, really enjoy is Dahlia also does a free goals analysis. So if you go to either my website or her website, streetwisemortgages.com, mention the podcast and ask for the free goals analysis. It was a game changer for me. And it allowed me to actually understand what I needed to do, how many properties I was going to get because of the cash flow that I was looking for. If you guys wanted to reach out to Dahlia, you can reach out to her by email, which is info at streetwisemortgages.com. Or you can actually reach out to her on the website at streetwisemortgages.com. And then just go to the contact section. And you can also call her at 1-800-208-6255. Thanks for listening and back to the show.
1: Back to the show. Where should I invest? Real estate investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey.
2: Yeah, and absolutely, you know, and for me personally, I always thought would somebody rather have a great property or a great joint venture partner? And personally, I would always pick the great joint venture partner over a great property because if you've got somebody that's shady, that's your 50% partner, whatever, if you're the active or the passive, you know, that is gonna go down very, very quickly. But if you've got a great partner and, and a decent deal or whatever it is, a deal can become great. Um, and exactly. Really, you know, keep growing together. So I will take the great joint venture or the great partner any day over any great property.
0: And that's very true. So then uh, I had a chance to buy about nine properties that way. Then I wanted to get into building and development, and I spoke to a lot of local companies, and you know, nobody would really help me. Nobody would show me how to build. And I found a, prop, a company in Alberta, Edmonton. I pulled title in all their projects. They're a mid-sized developer. And I noticed that they went to the same company owned by a few doctors to always get their initial finan- financing money to buy the land and to do what's called site plan approval. So the first million to buy the land and a half million for site plan approval. And I called them and I said to them, listen, I'd love to come out there and show you guys how to raise money for that instead of just using the same five doctors, how to raise it from other people. And it was a Wednesday, and they said to me, don't come out. And by the Tuesday, I was out there, and I I said to them, I just flew 3,500 kilometers, uh, three and a half hours flight, and you will give me one hour of your time. And they're like, you flew from Toronto all the way here, even though he said no? And I said, yes. So, again, you know, fortune favors the bold. And the fact that I flew out there, they were a little bit shocked. And I sat there and I convinced them. I said, listen, if you're getting one group to provide money, you're buying one piece of land, you're waiting three years before you can actually buy the next piece. If I can help you raise money, you can buy three pieces of land. And then as you start the one, at least you bought the other two pieces real cheap, two and a half years downrange, you can start the next and then the next after. And I said to them, I'll help you do this if you teach me to build, which means I want to Coexist with your with your general manager and i have to do this for about six months to a year before i raise money for you guys and they went for it you know they paid for my flights they paid for my hotels uh they paid for me to learn the industry and then i started raising money for them and i think today i've I've probably raised about 32 million dollars for them and um, at the same time i'm I'm a 25 percent owner of the company
2: that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, and you're doing something that people that were shot down originally that were told, no, they'd probably be like going back to their little lives and doing their thing. But, you know, you decide to go for it and worse that could have happened. I mean, you get to go and see Edmonton or <laughs> you get to go see the city and you go back and it costs the flight, right? So, I mean, I think sometimes you got to take those risks in life and, you know, great uh, great to see that you were, uh, were successful there.
0: And that's so true. People always ask me, you know, why do I take risks or why am I creative? And I always say to them, it's my parents. My parents loved me unconditionally. I was allowed to make mistakes. And therefore, for me to think freely did not harm me. And I knew that if I failed, I can always go back home. So really true brave people are ones who don't have two parents who support them, maybe only one who support them. Uh, For me, they're always there. So uh, to jump on a plane and fly 3,000 miles away if I was broke, I could just call them. So okay. having that security blanket was always uh, a benefit to me.
2: Right, right. Well, I mean, you did something with it r- rather than just sitting and, you know, <laughs> being given stuff. So it's nice to see that regardless, you you still had some fire in you to, to you know, do things and go out there and get it for yourself, which is awesome. So I want to talk about obviously a few other things as well. And I know we're, we're pressed for time, but I wanted to ask about development because we haven't really covered that in any of our uh, sessions so far. And you are like the guy to speak with. And, and also we want to cover, if we have some time, the storage units. <laughs> Sounds so, good. Sounds good. So in, in regards to developments, can you just briefly maybe walk us through some of your latest projects, what you did, how you found them, and just some of the things as you're going through it, what we should be aware of and know.
0: Yeah. So generally what I do is I look for Walmarts, the Penguin Centers, and then I draw a massive circle because I know ultimately within about a five to seven kilometer radius of that new build, that's where farmland is going to turn into you know properties, houses, some buildings. Now, I focus on side-by-side houses, or they call them semis out here, or four-story condo buildings. And in most cases, I would approach the farmers and have a conversation with them. you have to respect them. When I talk to farmers... I have to understand who they are because a lot of large developers come in and they have an attitude when they talk to the farmer. For me, you know, I understand them. I know where they hang out. I meet them where they hang out. And then they invite me back to their place and we have a conversation. So I'm able to secure a land that way. When it comes to development, first and foremost, it's the land and negotiating that with the farmer. Then, of course, the site plan approval, which is the the zoning, working with the city, going through all your fees, understanding the architectural structure of the building, And uh, that can cost, depending on what you're building, from half a million to a million, even more if you're going higher than four stories. So that process is a six-month to a one-year process. In most cases, for me, it was one year. And then uh, from that, we have to deal with underground services. So putting in the sewers and the gas and so on and so forth. That takes about six months on a four-story build. And then from there, we dig basements. And then from the basement, at this point, usually the bank comes in because at this point we have about 75% pre-sale. So we have to get money from private lenders or from private investors to take care of that purchase, million dollars, site plan approval, another million, underground services, another million, and then digging basements, uh, let's say half a million before we go vertical, before the bank actually comes in and takes out the investor. Mm -hmm. And then when the bank comes in, Every, let's say, waypoint we reach, the bank will then forward more money to us until it's completed. And I like four stories because it's an easy build. People get their money back within three years. And uh, you can still build it with wood or concrete. It's a good choice. I, I like houses that are semis because you dig one basement, you make the same roof, the same outer shell. You drop a wall in between. Each unit can be sold for, let's say, four hundred, So that's $800,000 but the same large house on its own would be about uh, six, 600. So I like cybersides, I like semis.
2: That's amazing. So how long does the project take from the time that you secure the deal with the farmer to the time that it's complete?
0: So a lot of it depends on how far, far out we are. So if we're a little bit far out, we have to secure that piece of land. I may not buy the land, I might do something called an option to purchase where we agree upon a future price, we put a deposit in, and we, for instance, if it's a, a million-dollar piece of land, I may put an option in there with a deposit of uh, $25,000, and we agree upon buying the land at a future price. So if it's a million dollars, we may agree to buy it for $1.3 But I always attach the right to assign to that option of purchase in case a developer who is larger than we are comes along, wants that land. Remember, I have the right to buy it. Let's say in about two years, they have to sell it to me. If I don't buy it, I lose my deposit. But with the right to assign, I can assign it to somebody else. But sometimes I might wait two years before the city moves close enough or the roads move close enough for me to to actually buy that. Obviously, if I was a larger company, we would buy five or 10 years out. We're not that large. We don't have that much money sitting around to do that, to, to do land banking.
2: Wow. That's, that's really interesting. So a lot of the land that we see out there, it actually might just be called for already. Just somebody's waiting to, to start building on it.
0: True, true. Okay. Yes. okay.
2: What are some of the, you know, biggest things and realizations? I think that since you, as you are you know, getting more and more familiar with developing, like what are some of the original or initial, you know, maybe mistakes that were made? And what are some things that you see that are very common mistakes that people should, should just be aware of?
0: Well, with my partners, you know, once you do big, people naturally want to do bigger next. And so we did 113 houses and my partners wanted to do a 280 house subdivision, which is naturally larger than 113. And one of my philosophies is we need to do big, good, do small, perfect, then do bigger next. So I convinced them to do small 35 house subdivisions. And what we did during those subdivisions, we actually perfected our craft. And we realized that some of the things that we were doing when we built the 113 houses, we had flaws, we had systems, and it, it's a family business also. Not my family, but my partner's family, you know, which meant that they had uh, dinner meetings when I wasn't there and things would change. We would have discussion Monday, myself and a general manager and they would have discussions, let's say Tuesday or Wednesday for dinner. And then by, by next Monday things have changed. So, you know, just learning how to bring families into business and uh, at the same time, understanding where we were weak and perfecting it before we went to a larger subdivision. So again, it's just a philosophy. And what I did, I've developed probably about 80 or 90 philosophies that I use on a daily basis, just like what I mentioned, if you do big, do small perfect, then do bigger. And each of those philosophies, they serve me very, very well.
2: So where would somebody get those philosophies? If they wanted to reach out, do you have them listed or is that something that you ever do coaching for?
0: Yeah, so I do spend uh, probably 25% of my time coaching. A lot of people say to me, well, if you're doing well, why do you coach? Why do you even charge? Well, first of all, you know, time value of money is true. You have to understand that time has value. And if your time has value, it takes you up the hill. But if when you reach the top of the hill, you stop respecting your time value. It's a very quick way to fall down the hill, number one. Number two, as a coach, uh, as I was investing in real estate, I needed that coaching money to help me fill a lot of stop gaps. Because if you're making cash flow, so you say you're, you're taking home $3,000 cash flow for the year or 4000 cash flow. If your roof goes on a residential, there goes your cash flow. But if you're coaching, you're making money in between. So the coaching was very important for me to help me fill the stop gaps. I like coaching because I'm also able to, uh, the things that I've learned, I'm able to share with other people. And as I share it with them and see the results, it's a great way of testing my theories that when I say theories, things that I've done and have proven, but I, I get to live them again and, uh, you know, draw from that. So I, I do spend some of my time coaching. I think it's ver- really, really important.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like, so you mentioned your partner a couple of times and you mentioned that they have, you know, dinner conversations and that good stuff. And I don't know if this is part of even what you cover when you you do your coaching. But so how did you find your business partner and how did you guys split like what you're doing, what they're doing and all those tasks?
0: So each person has certain strengths and we have to understand their strengths. So in, in, in a partnership, if you have, for instance, four people, one person is a visionary. But you'll find that the visionary is probably not great at systems. And the person who's great at systems probably will not dot the I's and cross the T's. So, I mean, the visionary certainly will not dot the I's and cross the T's. So we have to understand who's the communicator, who's the visionary, who can take that vision and create a system to make it happen, who can dot the I's and cross the T's do all the administration. So I look at my partners and I try to match it up. I don't want to have four visionaries as partners. I don't want to have four systems people because there's no vision and I don't want to have four dot the i's and cross the t's because it's all administration. So literally I pick my partners by building a team mm-hmm. and I pick from each person's strengths or weaknesses and I'll create a group of 3 or a group of 4, but I tend not to have partnerships with more than, you know, four people. Each person brings one strength. Now, if I have a person who's very bold, then I need to have somebody who's a good listener. and and two people who are friendly. Because if all you have are bold people, you're fighting. If you have bold and friendly, well, who are the friendly people gonna complain to? The listener. So you have to have a listener (laughs) or else it won't really work. And you have to have someone who's analytical because if no one's analytical, you really can't get the math done. But the person who's analytical, they don't have the vision. They're probably not great communicators. So you see, each team has to be built up the correct way in a little small group of three, group of four and each person has to bring something unique to the table. And we work with each other's strengths and weaknesses. That's yeah. generally how I create teams.
2: That, that is really cool. So do you, do you know these people ahead of time? Do you find them at different networking events? Or are they other investors?
0: So generally, I tend to find them at uh, charities. I tend to find them at uh, so charities or I'll find them at uh, fashion shows, sometimes at networking events, but mostly just out there in the world. And if you go to any event, I mean, people have about 10 problems that are common. Some of us have one of those problems. Some of us have two or three. And if you understand the 10 common problems that people have and you have a solution to them, when you meet people, you can quickly determine who is going to be a great partner. So an example of a common problem is somebody's hit the glass ceiling or somebody, you know, has a problem setting goals or somebody is spitting their wheels in a job that's not their purpose, but more so their their job, right? So that's about 10 of those things. And as you meet people and you have conversations about whichever situation is theirs, you see how they handle it, then you're able to decide, you know, do I want this person as a partner? Will they take instruction? Are they dependent? Meaning it's never their fault. They never accept responsibility. Those, kind of, those <laughs> folks who don't accept responsibility, it's never their fault. Obviously, they're the worst partners, right?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. So that's, that's some really, really great insight. Thank you for sharing that. I, uh, I know that, um, you also dabble in the storage unit, So I definitely want to pick your brain a little bit about that, ask you some questions because a lot of podcasts that I've listened to in the U S and this is, you know, even more common, I think in the U S than Canada, they do really well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know many others, uh, maybe a handful of them other than you and maybe three or four other people that have them here. So tell us you know, the pros and cons, financing, everything that you can, I guess, in, in the next few minutes.
0: OK, yeah, sure. So I, I bought my first self-storage back in 2003 and um, I had five cottages up in the Minden area. I used to drop off canoes to the self-storage, but I used to bring the guy a coffee every time. And uh, he was dying of cancer, I didn't know this. And uh, he said to me, he'd love for me to buy his self-storage property when he passes away. And I thought, wow, you know, I really appreciate that. So I bought it. So uh, when it comes to self-storage, the old type, uh, pretty much uh, one acre is about 43,560 square feet. You can put a 30 by 100 building and a 30 by 100 means 3,000 square feet, you can put five of those on one acre because you have to have roughly 35% land coverage. You can't cover more land because trucks and cars have to move within those buildings. So a 3,000 square foot building has about 22 units, and those units can be mixed up into different combinations. It could be you know, 10, 10 by 15s, uh, 10 2 10 by 20s, and some 10 by 30s, and so on and so forth. But the bottom line is the average would be about $250 per unit. Now, keep in mind, you don't have fridges or stoves. You don't have washers or dryers. You don't have kids or pets. You don't have neighbors complaining. It's just a garage door. You open it up. People put things in, close it down. So at 22 units, at about 250 per unit, that's about 5500 a month gross coming in for just one building. Times that by five, that's 27500 for the five buildings. Now, your cost is 36% to operate. So 27500 10000 is about 17500 Your mortgage is 25%, and that's about 4500 So basically, $13,000 is your cash flow at 100% capacity. These things run at 90% capacity. So that's about 12000 a month. So 12 times 12 is about $144,000 a year in cash flow. And someone can live on that just for having one acre with five 3,000 square foot buildings on there that's 90% rented. So it's done the best for me. I mean, I have plazas, I have mixed use plazas, I have office buildings, I have commercial, I have uh, multi-residential, all of these things. And I work hard for these things for my self-storage. Each wow. person has to have insurance. And the biggest problem is sometimes someone comes looking for a moonshine still, and that's about it you know, or a Harley Davidson.
2: (laughs) So if somebody doesn't pay, are you able to change the locks right away?
0: Yeah. So if someone doesn't pay, you can change the locks. And uh, you see all these auction shows. It doesn't really work like that because when someone, when they don't pay, they leave junk and I have to spend about $250 to get it removed. But just really quickly. um, So those five buildings, that's the old way of doing things. Then they've combined them to one large building. So you get more coverage, right? and then they go up two levels and three levels. So now you're using more of the land because that large building, is about 55% coverage, floor one, then you have floor two and floor three. And then now you see some of the most beautiful buildings out there and what I'm doing is now we'll be building those, but a portion of it will be like WeWorks, will be offices, cafeteria, uh, place to store your wine, extended closet, place to store your retail inventory, a place to conduct business, boardrooms, and so on, so forth. So it's a combination of self-storage and business. So
2: So where is that one going? Where is it going to be?
0: So right now I'm looking at a piece of property between Bradford, uh, Bradford, which is just North Vaughan. And I'm also looking in Scarborough. Scarborough has uh, inexpensive land and there are certain areas that are looking very good. So I'm right now negotiating a parcel of land. They're trying to charge me 1.7 million an acre. I want it to be a million dollars an acre. So (laughs) I'm working on that. And uh, again, Bradford's a little small town. A lot of people haven't heard about it, but it's popping. Yeah. So, you know, just before Bradford, I have another piece of land I'm looking to buy and then build. And I have the largest, one of the largest companies, Maple Rinders. They want to build it uh, for us and partner with us.
2: Wow.
0: And, uh, you know, uh, so I look, I look forward to doing that. So go ahead.
2: I was going to say, so some people will buy an already pre-existing storage, you know, um, building or whatever, but you think that it's, is it better? To build. build I'll
0: tell tell you why. The math that I just gave you for the existing self-storage, when I bought it, land was at a good price. Now land has doubled and tripled. So now it's harder to make money by buying an existing self-storage because the land price has gone up tremendously. So a half million dollar piece of land is now 1 million or 1.5 million. So it eats into your cash flow. Number one, number two, nobody wants to sell them. People don't sell these. And if there's someone selling it, it's because it's at 50% capacity. This person just doesn't know how to run it or it's in the wrong location, but it's very hard to find these. If you can find one, then call me and I'll help you buy it, you know, (laughs) but like, like literally they're hard to find. So then, you know, do you buy or do you build? So, you know, today, you know, to build the new ones, the, the fashionable ones, it's really good because cities don't like these. They hate them. They look like garage they look like garage doors. So cities are not crazy about them. It's hard to get the zoning for it. So if you build the newer ones that look like the rest of the buildings in the area, and then the cities are more uh, willing to accept a self-storage uh, close to residential wow. and, you know, uh, closer to highway. <laughs>
2: So there's, I mean, probably a million other questions I can ask you about this, but <laughs> I know we don't have two hours, but if anybody I'm sure has some, uh, some more questions, will be, we'll put your information that we can reach out to you. But before we let you go, I have every single guest that comes, there's a lightning round after the main interview. And so basically it's a series of five questions. Everybody gets the same questions and then just answer whatever the first answer that comes to your mind. You ready? Sounds
0: good. Sounds good.
2: All right. So number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book ever?
0: So probably Cash Flow Quadrant from Robert Kiyosaki, because it it discusses you want to work not in your business, but on the business. And that's why I've opened up lots of other businesses uh, with my real estate proceeds to hire people
2: and get paid. Great book. Number two, what's your favorite podcast? Do you listen to podcasts? And if so, which one?
0: Well, I like yours.
2: (laughs) other than mine do you listen to any it could be real estate could be non-real estate whatever I guess
0: so I do but this is gonna sound kind of weird and I know it's a it's a quick round but I'm very careful about taking too much information in like some people I call them bookaboos they just read like 40 books a year but if you read one book in January and you spend February absorbing it and then March trying to apply it and by April you have principles then you have eight principles that you can incorporate and live if you do that four times a year, read four books, but you incorporate you know uh, thirty two principles you'll be a lot more successful. so I do take information in, but I try not to take too much in I like to absorb it, not just read read read, and when you ask somebody, you know what did you get from the book? Oh, it was a good book, yeah, but what principles are you living? Did you get eight principles from that book that you're living? No, no, but it was a good book well. Mm-hmm. Success comes from living principles.
2: Absolutely. That's the probably the best piece of advice I've heard mm-hmm. maybe ever. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I'm like, I, I sometimes read a lot and I listen to a lot of podcasts. But, you know, you are where you are today because of the tactics and the measures and the, you know, the ways that you do things. So definitely, I think that's an amazing tip. So thanks for sharing. What about number three? What's your favorite pastime? So what do you do for fun when you're not working?
0: Yeah, so I skydive a lot. I do 10 jumps a year. I fly down to Arizona, you know, uh, just outside of Tucson. I do my 10 jumps. I scuba dive in Belize, do it three times a year. I also do whitewater rafting, uh, Ottawa River, and I spend some time just, uh, you know, repelling or mountain climbing again in Arizona. So I I like doing more physical things and then traveling as well.
2: Very cool. Do you have a place in Arizona?
0: Yeah, so I picked up Three houses in Sun City in 2007, when everybody ran away from the U.S., I ran towards it. <laughs> and, uh, and, instead of buying the, the cheap stuff, like the stuff that I bought used to be probably 850, I bought it for like 350. I could have gotten things for 200, but I don't want to buy a 200,000 house on an empty street. Right. So I, I bought good properties, major discount, and I rent them to executives. So I provide the maid, I provide you know the cook, I provide you know whatever uh, the company needs for their executives to actually uh, rent the spaces. And and they pay me like a yearly contract and they pay very well.
2: There you go. That's a whole other business and a whole (laughs) whole other other new concept. That's a
0: concept. That's right.
2: (laughs) Number four, if you lost all your money and your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? Well, I would
0: probably do something called discount mortgaging, where you find VTBs that exist. Let's say somebody bought a building for a million dollars. Now, two million, they put a million from the bank, half a million dollars cash, and the seller is holding a mortgage, half a million dollars. At 7%, that's 35000 a year. So I'd probably take 35000 And keep in mind, it's a five-year mortgage. They get half a million dollars when the mortgage is up. They get 35000 a year. That's $175,000. I might just buy their entire income stream. So I might say for $35,000, I'll buy your $175,000 income stream, your interest stream, which means I'm getting $140,000, $35,000 a year worth of interest. So I, I know I said that pretty fast, but if someone's going to collect $35,000 a year interest at 7% on a half million dollar VTB, I can just buy that income stream because they probably need the money. So right. $35,000 down, I'll take the 140 dollars dollars a year. And, you know, I would do that to at least set a base. Then I would do some assignment of contracts or wholesaling, I guess you call it
2: today. <laughs> See, I guess because you still have the education and all the skill set. So if you lost all your money tomorrow, I mean, they say the first million is the hardest to get. So after that, you can replicate it a lot easier.
0: Very, very true. Very true. true. But with big comes hard. You know, the, the larger you get, everything you do, you have to get it right is a lot of responsibility, a lot of uh, scrutiny. And uh, so therefore, I mean, today, if I make a mistake, it actually has ramifications. So being big is one thing, but can you handle big? That's really important, right?
2: Yeah, yeah very good point. Number five. So if somebody has $50,000 and they came to you and asked you how they should start or how they should spend it, what would you say?
0: Okay, I'd say I would take fifteen thousand to hold your hand through whatever strategy that you want to do. But when I say fifteen thousand, I mean fifteen thousand to hold their hand through the whole process, as opposed to just doing like you know a class here or there. Classes are good, mm-hmm. and co- coaching is good, but you also have to walk them through the process as well. And most likely, I'd probably say to them, with that sort of money, you might want to obviously you want to partner with somebody, but you have to have the knowledge to be that partner. Bottom line, you're never going to have the money that you need to buy all the real estate you're going to you're gonna want. So whether you run out of money in your first deal or your 10th deal, you have to understand how people's minds work, how to bring them to the table, how to generate a certain amount of you know uh, gravitas, uh, how to attract people. And I would spend my money learning that from people who do that for a living. So if you're, you're uh, you know, actually I've heard great things about your coaching. So, I mean, you would pay someone to coach them. And then from there, you know, whatever's left over, you could do something with.
2: Okay, excellent. So that was our lightning round. So if somebody wanted to reach out and find out more about you, where can they go?
0: Well, I have a company called NIDUS Hub. So N-I-D-U-S-H-U-B.com. And NIDUS just means the center of all thought. And Hub is a place for people to come to get together. Or I have an answering service, uh, 289-440-2335. They can leave a message for me. And um, I'll I'll call them back and ask them, you know, exactly where are you? What are you looking to do? And, you know, have a conversation.
2: Okay, excellent. And if you had one last piece of advice, what would it be?
0: You know what? A lot of people have a hard time with purpose. They don't know what their purpose is. And because I was a college teacher for 10 years, I had so many students come to me. I had this one little thing I would do to help them figure their purpose out. It'll take about a minute, but I'll share it with you just really quickly. Uh, Simply draw a cross. In one corner, you say, what makes you mad? So what makes me mad? Watching people get ripped off. What makes you sad? What makes me sad? People who are not living their potential. What makes me happy? People who live a very effective life. And what is my skill? What comes natural to me? I love to teach. I love to spot problems. Now, having said all that, if I were a police officer, you know, showing up on a crime scene, I'm always showing up after the fact. So if that makes me mad, I go to work and I'm mad. And if I'm looking at great people not using their potential, um, people dying too young or crazy car accidents, now all of a sudden I'm sad all the time. Mm-hmm. If I'm not there to help people live a more effective life. See, if a cop writes a ticket, he doesn't know how many lives he saved from that, although he saved a lot of lives. But the fact is, you don't get to see it. And a cop's not really a teacher. So if I was a police officer and I was applying that job to those things, I would make money, but I wouldn't be happy in my job. Why do I do real estate? I love it, but why do I mentor? I mentor and teach because number one, I help people stop getting ripped off. Number two, I help people live a more effective life. Uh, Number three, I help people to, you know, like like be more efficient in what they do. And four, I teach them. So that's where your money is. Your money and wealth is at the intersection of all four of those. So I will t- tell your listeners: answer those four questions—mad, sad, happy, and skill set—and then apply to everything out there and through process elimination. You will come to exactly what you should be doing in life because there's a purpose. Everything has a purpose. Eyes to see, ears to hear, stove to cook, plane to fly, and you to do whatever your purpose is. But you got to find it. And that's where your wealth is. And wealth is defined as what you love doing the most. I know it's a long answer, right?
2: (laughs) And there you have it, but it is a great answer. And so on that note, Matt, thank you very, very much for being on the show on where should I invest? Thank you for sharing all your insights and your information. And you've got so many you know, great different experiences. So definitely a great wealth of knowledge. So thank you very much.
0: Well, I'm honored to be on your show and I just love what you guys are doing. And it's just amazing to see people at your age do great things. It's it's our future. So I'd love to be part of that.
2: Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons and at the time they all seemed very valid but as I started my journey these reasons slowly fell away and eventually only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven actionable repeatable system i didn't have that and the way that was going to change was by investing in myself learning listening and looking for ways that worked. and also most importantly discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again fast forward to today i now have a proven repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you wanna be faster